Welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly infusion of quick little board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. In this episode, I'm racing across Siberia with Michael Strogoff, Ruth is adventuring with the Pathfinder card game, Sarah weaves new fairy tales in Once Upon a Time, and Catherine's finally able to talk about Crisis, one of the hardest to come by Euros of the last few years, now back on Kickstarter in a second edition. But first, will Lindsay be the bravest witch? Find out as she tells us all about Broom Service. Hi everyone, it's Lindsay here. And this episode, I'm going to tell you what I think of Broom Service, a pick-up-and-deliver push-a-lot board game with hand management, designed by Alexander Fister and Andreas Pelican, published by Aaliyah and Ravensburger, amongst others, with artwork by Vincent Jurey. It's a 2-5 player game with a 30-75 minute duration, player count depending. When deciding what game to talk about this episode and looking at my collection, I suddenly felt compelled to discuss Broom Service. It was really popular when it was first released, but was eclipsed a little by Fister's Great Western Trail, and we don't hear much about Broom Service anymore. I first chose it as a birthday present a few years ago, and I was drawn to it because of the theme, which is the central mechanic, bearing in mind that at that point I hadn't played a pick-up and deliver game, and the artwork. Possibly too twee for some, and may even deter people from wanting to play, but I love twee sometimes. So all that said, I was really excited to play the game. I enjoyed it for my very first play. It's still not a game I play too often, and it's definitely one I have to be in the mood for. So in Broom Service, we're playing as witches and other whimsical characters on a mission to deliver potions and score points. Over a series of rounds, you use a hand of 10 cards to let you deliver to different coloured territories and you choose brave or cowardly actions. Brave has greater rewards, cowardly not so much. But if you play brave and another player is holding the same card, they play brave instead and you lose your opportunity and the turn order reverts to the person who played the brave card. Delivering potions scores you points and the player with the most points wins. That's a really brief overview but if you go and check out the rules and watch some videos you can discover more. I think what surprised me from the get-go was how despite not being overly complex it's extremely tricky, sometimes frustratingly so and that's why I have to be in the mood to play it. But also, this is what makes it a very decent design and why it shouldn't be dismissed on toy appearance, because whilst it might look as such, it's actually a tough little beast. It's terribly cutthroat at times, and the brave and cowardly mechanic is as take that as it comes, in my opinion, even though the game is not categorised as such. Which again, I have to be in the mood for. I have been very irritated, bordering on pissed on occasions when playing this, and trust me, I never get like that. Whilst you have to plan your turn carefully and prepare for different outcomes, sometimes playing a card brave and the other player denouncing that means that your plan is thrown into a tailspin and your turn could go to waste, which again is frustrating. But as I said, it's all part of the good design because you're really having to strategize for what you do and have a backup strategy in case it goes to pot as a consequence of the brave and cowardly mechanic. So it's really a whole heap of strategizing, which I love. I have agonized over what to do with my turn and try to predict what the other player is planning. And the more you play, the easier it becomes to do so. And you start choosing your brave or cowardly actions very carefully, which also leads to those intense eek moments that I personally enjoy. But if you don't like games where you're forced to screw each other over, this will probably not sit very well with you. I don't mind those kind of games. I actually enjoy a bit of a mean game, but it's when my strategy gets messed with and I'm more annoyed at myself for not planning ahead more effectively. But I do think it's quite balanced with the rewards you get. You don't lose out by playing cowardly. You get to take action still, but if you play cowardly too often, you won't be as productive and will start to trail behind on points. But as you start delivering and gaining further potions and wands and grabbing clouds and amulets if you're playing with the advanced variant, then you can see your progress and it feels really good. There's also some nice end of game bonuses, and if you've played well and gained lots of stuff, you can really benefit from that. I also really like the way the turn order switches when the brave cards are played, and you never really know how that's going to affect the course of the game. It adds a nice element of surprise. I really like that there are variants to play with. There's the base game for first-time players, 
or perhaps just have an initial run through. But you can add in events and other various challenges and possibilities by simply adding extra tokens on the board and using additional cards. So it's really easy just to add more when you feel like it. There's also a room service card game which is separate but it adds a 910 card mini expansion for the base game which is just another element to change things up a bit. I've still not played the card game um, but I hope to one day. It's just hard for me to find people to play this with. Um, hopefully I will at some point. As mentioned the artwork is really lovely. I love the style the board is vibrant, the witch meeples are adorable and the characters are cool and beautifully illustrated but I do feel like they lack diversity which is a shame but as an overall game it's pleasing to the eye. The only other issue I have is where the turrets are located on the board so that's where you deliver the potions and it's hard to tell in places where the base of the turret is for example, I'm really looking carefully to see it's on a hill or a mountain because it looks like it's in between the two. And after many games these past few years, I still struggle with this. Although it's got a tad easier. Because my eyesight isn't fantastic, so I find myself staring at the board at times, still saying, right, so which area is this considered to be on? So if you're visually impaired, this definitely isn't ideal. So, broom service. A strategy ladder and tough cookie in a cutesy package. Meaningful decisions throughout the game, risks, rewards and consequences. Frustrating at times and mean as hell. Lovely to look at but annoying when the placement of the turret is ambiguous and lacking diversity in the character representation. It's fantastic for variants, giving it a decent amount of replayability. Overall, it's a well-liked game, uh, but perhaps not in favourite territory. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube shiny have meeples visit my website shinyhavemeeplesco.com or follow me on twitter capital s capital h capital m meeples co bye for now hi i'm mason weaver let's talk about michael strogoff back in episode 29 i talked about devere games artist pedro soto and the games that use copyright free source material the follow-up game in what i'm calling devere's historical literature line is michael strogoff a threat management race game based on Jules Verne's 1876 novel of the same game. Strogoff was released in late 2017 and designed by Alberto Corral, who you may know from 2013's also sort of co-op-ish thing, Castaways, often compared to Robinson Crusoe. In Michael Strogoff, you were a courier racing from Moscow across Siberia. The evil Colonel Ivan Ogarov, traitor to the Tsar, leads a Tartar invasion force to Irkutsk. You, a loyal czarist, must reach the city ahead of the invaders and warn the Grand Duke or the Empire will plunge into civil war. While based on a historical novel, it's worth noting here that none of this happened or was really even possible in 1870s Russia. Though this isn't one of Verne's science fiction works, it's still speculative pulp, so don't go telling people you learned all about the Tartar Rebellion from the Five by because it never happened. Michael Strogoff isn't exactly cooperative, but it's not strictly competitive either. It plays 1 to 5 and it scales well all the way up and down. I think that's mostly because there's zero interaction between the players. You're not competing for resources, not blocking each other, not getting each other's way. You're all just moving forward turn after turn as quickly as you dare from Moscow to Irkutsk. At the end of every round, a card flips over and the hated Colonel Ogorov moves forward as well, usually outpacing you. If he makes his way across Siberia before any of the players do, it's highly likely you'll all lose. Even if a player does manage to get to the city ahead of Ivan, you'll have to have enough save cards in your hand to duel Ogorov. One of you is going to die probably you. In this game, you're mostly managing the cards in your hand, mitigating threats, deciding how fast to push forward, and how much risk you're willing to assume doing so. Every time you choose to move, you have to draw a threat card. These pile up in front of you, and they each have at least one symbol on them. Match two wild animal claw symbols, and you've been attacked by bears in the forest. Now bad things are going to happen. All of your threat cards have a penalty. Lose a drop of blood, which is your life and strength in the game, Lose resources from your hand or flip root cards face down, which you'll have to spend at least one turn flipping back over before you can get back on the road. 
There's a lot going on mechanically in Michael Stroboff, so much so that it took us several plays to really get it all down. The rulebook is well laid out and everything is explained, but this is definitely a game you would benefit from being taught. There's a certain amount of end-of-round upkeep to handle. It's not that complex, but if you do it out of order or incorrectly, you can really screw up the flow and possibly break the game. Designer Alberto Corral has managed to do what many historically inspired games attempt and then fail at miserably. To abstract a simulation of events, maintain a narrative consistency, and have it all actually be a fun and playable game. It all just works, and once you've got a handle of the turn structure, the game does flow really well. After about 8 plays, we can get a 2-player game of Michael Strogoff in under around 30 minutes. The box size and component quality are really on point, as has been everything I've seen from Devere games so far. A huge draw for this one is the gorgeous art from Pedro Soto, who also illustrated Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft. And there's a lot of art in this game. Every card is beautifully illustrated and highly evocative, and it really made me wish Devere offered an art book for Strogoff like Ysteri did for Shakespeare. The box is square, but smaller than a Ticket to Ride size box and larger than the Cosmos 2-player patchwork size box. It's about 10 inches and in slim, think the new Fantasy Flight living card game boxes. Lots of high-quality linen-finished cards, high-quality heavy tracking dice, and cool chunky custom-shaped meeples. I paid full price, yes, that's right, full retail for this game at BGGCon after a single play because we liked it so much. It sells online right now for about $25, and if you're looking for value to money, this is it. The replayability in Michael Strogoff is super high, even though the variability is fairly low. I've tried a number of different strategies, and I'm good enough now that I can usually lose only one or two turns before I might have won instead of dying hopelessly in the Siberian wilderness. Because everyone is playing against the game at the same time, but not really against each other, it has a little bit of a cooperative feel, even though it's not co-op at all. Only one of you can win, but most likely everyone's going to lose, and more than likely everyone at the table will want to play again immediately. I will say my one game at 5 player was a little long, but that was a learning game and many of us were confused by it and didn't really have a good grip on the round mechanisms and the rules. If I were teaching a group of 4 new players, I might consider not actually playing myself and just talking through it and handling all the end of round business and overoffs movements. So who should buy Michael Strogoff? People who love strategic race games. People who love Russian history, even though it's fake history. People who like to play against a game but also don't like sharing or collaboration. People who want a good Saturday morning solo game that they can also take to game night and people who really, really hate traitorous kernels. I give Michael Strogoff two out of two of my own eyes blinded by a burning scimitar in the Tartars' camp. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter to producer Mike Risley's endless irritation at Discount Compost. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, back from a month of conventions and ready to talk about games again. Designed by Mike Selinker and published by Paizo, the Pathfinder Adventure card game offers an rpg light experience letting players create a party and take on classic adventure scenarios without the need for a DM. While participating in a local math trade, I ended up with this game after adding it to my list on a whim, and it quickly ended up being one of my most played games thanks to the fact I'm now in two separate campaigns. One is a two-player, and another has five of us intrepid heroes who began an adventure by setting out to protect Sandpoint, the town that after 40-some plays we still can't figure out why anyone would ever choose as a place to live. The Pathfinder Adventure card game now has multiple available storylines. Each consists of a base set followed by six adventure decks that together will tell a reimagined version of a Pathfinder RPG module. The set I'm playing is the original 2013 release, based on the rise of the Rune Lords. Subsequent sets introduced additional mechanics to the basic gameplay, giving each its own feel, and so I'm growing eager to try out another story as we get closer to finishing our current campaign. 
in Pathfinder, one to four players or one to six players with an additional character pack are going to band together to work their way through a series of scenarios that will make up each adventure. As they advance, they'll gain better equipment and improve their stats, all of which is extremely welcome given the fact that the tests they face also get harder as the story progresses. A scenario takes place in a number of locations, each represented by a deck of 10 cards. One of the cards in each deck will usually be a henchman or villain, although some scenarios do mix things up a bit. Players must not only defeat the villain, but they have to ensure the other locations have already been closed. Otherwise, the big bad slips away to be shuffled randomly into an open deck, and will thus need to be found and defeated again. Locations are closed by either defeating the henchman there, or by emptying the deck. At this point, players can attempt a skill check to close the location, often gaining some sort of bonus in the process. During a villain encounter, players at other locations can also try to temporarily close off their area to prevent escape. This is important, as the game has a time limit represented by its blessings deck, which means that sometimes setting up the right people in the right place for a temporary closure is actually critical to your success. In the game, each character has cards that will show the dice they roll for their skill checks along with their particular abilities. You can also print character sheets from the Paizo website to let you mark upgrades without writing on the cards. And we actually use these sheets in our group for both this reason and for the fact they're just easier to reference. The character's individual deck isn't just their equipment, spells, and allies they've gained throughout the scenarios, but it also represents their health, and players have to discard cards as damage. This leads to a delightful tension between wanting to draw as many cards as you can in order to get a good item out, but not wanting to deplete your deck too quickly as when it runs out, well, you're dead. To help characters survive, they can attempt checks to return cards to the bottom of their deck instead of discarding, or use healing items or abilities to shuffle their discards back in. But depending on the party setup, healing can be rare, so in order to succeed in Pathfinder, players need to be able to manage their hands carefully. At the end of each scenario, players will reset their decks, swapping in newly acquired cards as they wish and trading cards around. They'll also gain some sort of scenario reward, usually a stat increase, an increase to their deck, or a new skill off of their character sheet, setting them up for the next part of the adventure. Now, the Pathfinder Adventure card game is not what I'd call a narrative game. If you don't know the story of the module being referenced, then the card and scenario text only give you some brief flavor. But there's still emergent stories that come out during play. We have certain enemies that cause groans when they show up, have tales of horrendous luck at a location causing someone to have been banned from going back, and we've had plenty of dice placed in timeout due to their inability to cooperate. The character types and scenarios in the game are fairly generic fantasy, but the art from Noah Bradley and Vincent Detroit is well done, and frankly better handled than many games in similar settings. There's a good selection of female characters available in the game, and they're depicted in different clothing styles with a varied amount of skin showing. We have characters in everything from full plate armor to a bare midriff on our barbarian. The add-on character packs available add more options within the base classes and for adding extra classes, and I'm certainly enjoying the fact they let us play with a larger group as it lets us see the different ways characters handle challenges. Each member of our party feels different due to their class abilities, even though the decks have been built from the same pool of cards. Playing through a full Pathfinder adventure card game campaign does require a time commitment, and the story isn't as strong as if you were playing the actual RPG version of the same tale. 
but it's well worth checking out if it sounds interesting and if you'd like to get an RPG-like experience without someone needing to take on the role of a DM. The game's fairly quick to set up once you organize the cards, offers a ton of variety in playstyles, and it keeps everyone constantly engaged. We've had a lot of fun finding our way through the story, and the fact that we're already looking to take on further challenges is a testament to that fact. So until next time, when I'm not taking on that damn giant gecko, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Once Upon a Time is a storytelling game designed by Richard Lambert, Andrew Rillstone, and James Wallace and published way back in 1993. The rules are simple. Each player is dealt a hand of cards with story elements and one card with a story ending. Players work together to create a shared story, playing cards by weaving them into the narrative. The cards are based mainly on European fairy tales, so you'll build your story around elements like a tower, a cauldron, king and queen, someone going on a journey, something coming to life, things like that. You can interrupt if the active player says something that matches one of your cards. Like if the active player described a character who had been injured but got better, and you had a card that said healed, you could jump in at that point. You then control the story until another player interrupts you, or you get stuck and choose to pass. You win once upon a time by playing all your story cards, and then playing your ending card to finish the story. But really, this game is not about winning. It's about the delight of shaping a story together. With the right group of people, once upon a time is a remarkable experience. I sometimes find myself deliberately missing opportunities to interrupt because I'm enjoying another player's story so much that I don't want them to stop. I've even seen players who were on the verge of winning ask if someone could please interrupt them because they didn't want the story to end, and I knew exactly how they felt. In a good game of Once Upon a Time, the ending is so satisfying. Many times I've seen games end with spontaneous applause from the table. And I love how, after we've taken a moment to congratulate the winner, everyone at the table shares their ending card and describes how they were steering the story to get there. Like... My ending says the rightful ruler is restored to the throne. That's why I had the queen and her daughter go all Freaky Friday, so they could switch back and restore the rightful ruler. The collaborative nature of Once Upon a Time applies to the rules as well as the story. Many rules require the group to agree on whether, say, the active player is stalling for time without advancing the story, or whether to allow an interruption, or whether the winning player successfully set up her ending card. When a group works well together, finding consensus on the rules can enhance the feeling of collaboration. Much as I love Once Upon a Time, it's not for everyone. In the right group, Once Upon a Time is magical. It can be whatever the group wants to make it. Funny, clever, even profound. It's an experience I cherish. But in the wrong group, it can fail spectacularly. The game requires everyone to be comfortable with improvisation. You're building a story out of random card draws, keeping track of and expanding on story threads created by multiple people, doing this on the fly, and trying to make it interesting and creative. I have friends who find this fun, relaxing, less of a challenge than your typical Euro game. And I also have friends who would find this agonizing. That's neither a slam on them nor on the game. Just acknowledgement that Once Upon a Time is a bad fit for someone who's not comfortable with this kind of improvisation. Another issue is that, based as it is in European fairy tales, some cards have tropes that may be inappropriate or even offensive to your group. There's an ending card about illness being a punishment for wickedness that I usually just pull out of the deck, and many of the cards make assumptions about gender that I could do without. 
I usually give Once Upon a Time a pass on that because it was published in 1993. But then, my copy is the third edition from 2012. The cards were reprinted with new art, so they could have taken that opportunity to fix some of these issues. On the other hand, Once Upon a Time is the first game I ever saw where the rulebook refers to players using only female pronouns. In fact, this may be the only game I've ever seen do that. And if you can think of another, contact me on Twitter at Sarah Ovenall. I'd really like to know. My more serious caveat is that Once Upon a Time requires everyone at the table to buy into the collaborative goal, to focus on the story rather than on winning. All it takes is one person who's just there to win to ruin the game, and I do mean ruin. I once played a game where the start player said, Once Upon a Time There Was a Prince, and slapped down a card. He went on a journey far away, another card. He crossed a mountain, card. He found a tower. He met a princess, and they fell in love. So. He told her he was the prince and they lived happily ever after. I win. The entire game took about 30 seconds. Since then, I try to make sure people are going to be in the spirit of Once Upon a Time before suggesting it. That may sound like a lot of negativity, and I don't mean it to be so. Once Upon a Time is a remarkable game. It provides just enough structure to get the players going, then gives them an opportunity to create something together, something beautiful or clever or silly, whatever they want it to be. In 1993, it must have been groundbreaking. Even now, 25 years later, Once Upon a Time is the gold standard by which all storytelling games are measured. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not creating fairy tales, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Before I tell you about Crisis, I have to share the story of how this game almost wasn't in our library. We passed up the first Kickstarter and half-heartedly traded for Crisis a couple of months later. It sat on the shelf and neither of us seemed particularly excited to learn the rules. When we finally sat down to play the game, we were still unsure about it. After our first play, we looked across the table and eyes gleaming insisted on giving the game another go. We ended up playing it nine times that first weekend. Crisis is a semi-cooperative worker placement game for one to five players that takes about two hours to play, but can implode in less than 30 minutes if you don't know what you're doing. Crisis is based loosely on the recent failure of the Greek economy and the international austerity policy built to help it recover. Set in a gritty, urban future in a country called Axia, the success of your country is tied directly to the prosperity of you and your fellow gamers' business empires. Created by Pentelis, Bubulis, and Sotirios, Santilas, and published by Luda Creations, this has to be the most enjoyable economic simulation ever created. The game is played in seven rounds if you can get through seven rounds. To begin, one event card will get drawn from a stack that matches the current economic status of Axia. In player order, you will take turns placing pawns called managers until all are on the board. Then in a specific order, each location will be resolved. Some worker placement spots will seem familiar. Take out a loan, buy a good, invest in business, hire a worker. However, some spots are a little different from what you may have seen before. Importing goods to jumpstart production can be extremely costly, and negatively impact your VP quota and Axia's financial status, but sometimes it's the only option to help you start a lucrative production chain and kickstart your engine. Similarly, the last worker placement spot is a market where you can export goods you make in exchange for points and income. This market changes each round, with some goods you make being in high demand, and others not appearing at all during the course of the game. This might seem unfair, but you have the future market to evaluate which industries are going to be successful in the next two rounds and which are best avoided. A black market can help you sell what the market does not want, 
and as you have limited storage for all these goods, this can be very helpful. Axia's financial status is evaluated at the end of every round. Your personal success or failure to reach the round's victory point goal directly impacts the status. And if the financial status ever drops below zero, Axia is bankrupt and the game is over. All players are reliant on each other to help Axia succeed. You could play Crisis Cutthroat and watch the chips fall as they may, but if Axia falls, all players who did not meet the current round's financial goals lose the game. My husband and I love playing this game two-player, and we notice that with a bit of cooperation, we can help Axia survive through round seven, but on the harder settings, this is never guaranteed. In addition to worker placement, this game has compelling production chains that you can build. Some of these resources, like food and minerals, are fairly simple to create. They in turn can be used to power other chains to produce chemicals, which can be turned into industrial steel or machines. Conversely, you can choose a building that gives you points and money directly, a tempting option if the market doesn't swing your way. Each business you invest in has specific workers and resources required to run it. Cheap business investments give you little, but generally don't require resources to run. Expensive investments cost more and require more workers to run, but give you much more production. You can also hire more workers to add to production, which is a clever way to add to the puzzle of determining what is the most lucrative path to economic solvency for that round. There is an efficiency puzzle here, as money can be challenging to earn in the early rounds of the game. However, if you don't make big buys and go for an ambitious strategy of growth, you will suffer and Axia will suffer right along with you. My critiques of Crisis are few and minor. The biggest problem is that this game has been nigh impossible to get your hands on, as it has been part of a recent trend by some publishers to only release a game to those people who back it on Kickstarter, never releasing it into retail. However, at the time this podcast drops, Crisis is currently back on Kickstarter for a few short weeks. A much smaller issue is that the event cards seem a little humdrum. Typically, these events just make minor changes to a round, tugging Axia's financial status down or slowing production in one way or another. This game is such a success. The agonizing choices, the autonomy to develop your empire in a number of different industries, the escalation of everything from the number of managers you can place in a round to the number of workers operating your investments is, in my mind, pretty darn perfect. I haven't even mentioned the meeples, which are colorful and perfectly designed. The little slice of bread meeples melt my heart with joy every time I pick them up. Through and through, this game delivers on its promises. Deep and interesting gameplay, variability, and a great conflict for all players to attempt to surmount. I am always engaged playing Crisis, and I know that my choices matter because they're not only impacting my game, but the fate of Axia as well. Thank you for listening, and if you would like to follow me, you can find me as Cat Library on BGG or at Kybrarian on Twitter. Thank you for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.